Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 10 through 12. As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple, that they may be ashamed of their iniquity. Iniquities, and that they shall measure the plan. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits, its entrances, that is, its whole design, and make known to them as well all its statutes and its whole design and all its laws, and write it down in their sight, so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. This is the law of the temple. The whole territory on the top of the, of the mountain all around shall be most holy, because this is the law of the temple. We see two main purposes here for Ezekiel showing the Israelites the plans for the millennial temple. The first one is repentance. Look closely again at verse 10. It says, As for you, son of man, describe to the house of Israel the temple that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. Let me ask you a question. How is showing the Jews the plans for the new millennial temple, how is that going to make them repentant and make them ashamed of their iniquities? It sounds like a weird thing, doesn't it? Show them the plans so that they may be ashamed. You would think it would be show them the plans so they could get excited, but it's show them the plans that they may be ashamed. Well, let me ask you a question this way. Maybe this will help you. Why, are, why is God showing them plans for a new temple? Because the old one was gone. Yeah. Why was the old one gone? Ah, the reason they're even looking at new temple plans is because of their sin caused the old temple to be destroyed. Again, I'm not saying this to make anybody feel bad, but if you in some time in your past might have gotten drunk and smashed your car and had to buy a new car, why are you buying a new car? Because of your stupidity. I'm kind of embarrassed. Well, I had to go buy a new car. Why'd you have to buy a new car? Don't ask. You know what I'm saying? In the same way, he says to them, show them the plans that they may be ashamed. The fact that he's even showing them a new temple. They had Solomon's temple. The one that God had designed and David had helped put the stuff together. And Solomon, one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, had had built and it's now gone. And he says, show them the plans that they may be ashamed of their iniquities. There's another reason here. It's also to encourage them of God's forgiveness and future plan. It's to make them feel ashamed for what they've done. That's why we're even looking at new plans. But it's also to encourage them and about God's future blessings and how there's going, to, there's going to be another temple and it's going to be amazing and it's going to be this it's going to be even bigger than the one before and all that. But there's a key though, and that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit tonight. Look at verse 11. This is only for the repentant. That's why there's the word if. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple and its arrangement. Did you see the difference, what he said? Show them so they may be ashamed of what they've done. And if they are ashamed, then you can continue. Show them all this stuff. What I want you to understand is that God has a lot of cool things in store for us. Would we not agree that all of us have fallen short of God's glory? Would we not all agree that we all are unworthy of the blessings of God? 
But if we're repentant, if we're repentant, for those who are repentant, there are future blessings and reward. And we see here, there's two main reasons why he's to show the Jews the plans. One, so they would be ashamed of what they've done. That's why they're even looking at a new plan, because the old one had to be destroyed because of them. And also, if they're repentant, then they can be encouraged with what God's going to do in the future. Now, there's something else, though, here, too. Look again at verse 11. That the temple plans are also so that they may observe all of God's laws and statutes and carry them out. Do you see at the very end of verse 11? He says, Show me all, write it down in their sight so that they may observe all its laws and all its statutes and carry them out. Now, there's something here that we're going to spend a little bit of time on tonight, but let me ask you a question. God says, show them the plans and all its design so that they may observe the statutes and commands and carry them out. Can they? No. Why does God say, show them all this stuff so that they can do what they can't do? The reason is, this is tied to something God's already promised them earlier in Ezekiel. And if you read that, those verses with what God's already promised them in Ezekiel, it makes a whole lot more sense. Go back to Ezekiel 36. In Ezekiel 36, look at verses 22 through 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see it? When is this going to happen? When is this prophecy and this promise of God going to be fulfilled for the Jews? During the millennial kingdom. One of the reasons we know this hadn't been fulfilled yet, people say, wait a minute, he's brought them back into their land. They became a nation again in 1948, and the Jews are back in their land. No, no, no. The prophecy says that when God does this, and he brings them from all the nations back into their land, then all the nations will know that he is the Lord. Is that the case? Do all the nations know that he is the Lord? No. The Jews, have they turned to the Lord in full faith, and every Jew knows the Lord like the prophecy said? No. This is going to happen in the millennial kingdom that's further evidence of the fact that this temple, these plans that we're seeing here, are actually going to be the millennial king temple plans because that's when they're going to be able to observe his statutes and obey his commands, when the Spirit of God empowers them to do it. Keep in mind, there was the first temple that had just been destroyed, the one of Solomon that had been destroyed because of Nebuchadnezzar. Then 
As you know, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were allowed to go back from Babylon, and some Jews went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the temple, and of course they rebuilt it. But the people that had seen Solomon's temple now saw Ezra and Nehemiah's temple, and it was so much smaller, the footprint was smaller, they wept. Other people were rejoicing, but the people that had seen the old one were weeping because it was so small. And by the way, the Spirit of God never indwelt Ezra and Nehemiah's temple. And old Herod actually uh, added to it to be nice. He actually in, in, in added on to it, made it bigger and prettier. And if you remember when Jesus was walking there in Jerusalem, his disciples came to him and said, hey, look at the temple and all its buildings. And what did Jesus say? There's not going to be one stone of this left on top of another. It's all going to be destroyed. And because he came, offered them the kingdom right then, and they rejected him and put him to death, a judgment again came on the nation. And they were not only removed to Babylon this time, they were scattered to all the nations. And he destroyed the temple. Oh, there's going to be another temple, not the one we've been looking at here in Ezekiel. There has to be another one to be built because the prophecy clearly says that during the middle to the end of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to step in a wing of the temple, declare himself to be God. So there's going to be a third temple that's going to be built. But this one is the fourth one. This is one that's going to be a fourth temple. And that's when God is going to erase the sins of the Jews after the end of the tribulation period. The few that remain, the remnant that survive, they will all know the Lord. Remember the prophecy says you won't need any teachers saying know the Lord because they'll all know me. Talking about the Jews from the least of them to the greatest. At the end of the tribulation period at the millennial kingdom, he's going to erase their sin. He's going to wash them clean. He's going to put his spirit within them and move them to follow his decrees. Oh, we have that role now, remember? We've been given that responsibility now. You've heard me teach on this, but I'm going to remind you. In the church, in the church age, as a part of the called out ones, the ecclesia, what has God promised us when we by faith come to him through Jesus Christ? I'll erase your sin, I'll put my spirit within you, and I'll move you to obey me. And like we've touched on before, and I want to spend a little bit more time on tonight, the church today would agree that we've had our sins forgiven and the Spirit of God's in us. But very few of us really understand the empowering of the Holy Spirit to cause us to obey Him. We've all been taught you can't do anything to save yourself. God has to do it, and you've got to receive it by faith. But now that you're saved... You need to live for Jesus. Has anybody heard that kind of preaching? We were raised in an era of you can't save yourself. God has to do it. But now that you're saved, you need to live for Jesus. And we've tried. How'd that work out? One of the funniest things that, as I look back at it over the years, I didn't realize it when I was a kid, but it always makes me kind of chuckle now is, this is kind of what I grew up in. You can't save yourself. God has to do it. But if you'll receive it by faith, just come on down this aisle and you can give your life to Jesus. And we did. When we got down front, we say, praise the Lord, you're saved, okay? We expect you to be here every time the doors are open. Here are your envelopes. And, and you remember the envelopes we used to get? And you had to check off. I brought my Bible. I read my Sunday school lesson. It was all me, 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 me. How many of you, I, I, there were a lot of people last night. How many of you tonight 
Remember the old Sunday school pins you used to get? You got a Sunday school pin, and then every year you could add on the next one, and it would, they would kind of connect. You, hey, you were, it was like the military. Yeah, man. It, it, there's an old song. I'm not going to sing the song, but listen to the words. My Sunday school pin got too long for my coat, and it hung all the way to the floor. I haven't missed a Sunday in 33 years, and next year would have been 34 it all began on the day that I was born when the cradle roll added my name. And for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, my attendance went on just the same. But it stopped short when I fell and broke my shin when I tripped on my Sunday school pin. <clears throat> what did God say to the Jews? I'm going to cause you to obey my commands. I'm going to make you carry this out. We have the power of God within us that wants to live that out through us today. And so what I want to do is take you to some New Testament passages and some promises to begin to hopefully help you some more start to tap into what is available to us. We're not going to go to Ephesians 1, but Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and following, he says, my prayer now after hearing of your faith and your love for each other is that you'll have the eyes of your heart open, that you'll receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know Christ better and the hope to which he's called you, his glorious inheritance in the saints and his mighty power which is available for us who believe, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Oh, I'll make a little commercial. I know what I'm teaching on the cruise ship now, praise the Lord. Been praying about it and praying about it. Finally locked myself in my office Monday night and said, Lord, I need to know. Because we got a lot of stuff to get done for, before the cruise time. Publishing and posters and all this stuff. Plus the worship leader would like to have an idea of what it is I'm teaching on so he can prepare. And God showed me that we're going to be studying on the cruise coming up in April. Seven messages from the Romans chapter 8. And as I was breaking Romans chapter 8 down into seven messages, it all of a sudden opened up that the two prayers that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3 are dealt with in Romans chapter 8 in great detail. Remember how I told you how he prayed that they would know Christ better, know the hope to which he's called you, glorious inheritance in the saints, and his power available for us who believe. He then in chapter 3 in verses 15, 14 through 21 actually goes on and says, my prayer is that you together with all the saints would be rooted and grounded in love and would know together with all the saints the height, the width, width the depth, the breadth of the love of God. And in chapter 8, Paul deals with how there's no condemnation in Christ. He goes on into how that same power that rose Jesus from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies. Isn't that interesting? He's not saying we're, we know we're going to get a new body when we, get, when we get raptured. We're getting new ones. But the promise is that the Spirit of God that lives within us would give life to these mortal bodies. He then also goes on and talks about how we're coerced with Jesus Christ in Romans. He talks about uh, the future reward that's coming and the inheritance and all this stuff. And how does he end Romans chapter 8? Nothing will separate you from the love of God. So it's not too late, by the way, for anybody that's listening to sign up, but you better sign up quick. It's going to be a blast to study seven messages from Romans chapter 8.
in our study, paralleling them with Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. But again, what did Paul pray? He said, my prayer is that your eyes would be open, that you would know the power that's available for Christians. Go to John chapter 15. <clears throat> As you're turning to John chapter 15, we're looking at verses 4 and 5. Um, remember, Jesus has already had the Last Supper with His disciples in the upper room. He's already washed their feet. He's already had the teaching about the fact that the Holy Spirit had been with them, but it's going to be in them. And in that day, they're going to realize that He's in them, and He's in the Father, and they're in Him. And uh, It's just it's an amazing promise. And so chapter 15, He says this in verses 4 and 5. He said, Abide in Me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We, we know this verse, but how many of us really have looked at what Jesus is saying? He said, if you abide in me and you rest in me and you walk with me and you trust in me, just like the branch is connected to the vine and the power, the sap flows through that vine and it produces fruit. My spirit will take over as you rest in me and you will produce much fruit. Because apart from me doing it through you, you can do nothing. That's why so many of us have been so frustrated. That's why many of us struggled with many times of doubting whether or not we're even saved. Anybody go through that horrible dilemma? It's because we tried to live the Christian life and we weren't doing so good. Maybe I'm not saved. No, we had never been taught about abiding and walking in the Spirit and trusting that God's going to do what He said He would do. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 28 and 29. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. By the way, you will never find anybody that's walking in the Spirit say, I'm burnt out. Does the Holy Spirit ever run out? Didn't Jesus promise rivers of living water that would flow up from within us? Yet we hear of burnout in the church all the time. Two reasons why you're experiencing burnout. One is you might be doing something God doesn't even want you to do and he's letting you do it on your own. Or two, you may be even doing what God's asked you to do, but you're doing it in your own strength. Either way, not good. You'll never see burnout. Paul says, I toil, I labor, but it's actually his power. It's his power. Do you know how Jesus, when he, the disciples had gone into town in John chapter 4 to go buy food, they come back and they see him uh, talking to the woman, and uh, they say, Master, teacher, eat something. And what does he say? He goes, I have food that you guys don't even know about. Is he packing snacks? What's he talking no, he was being invigorated by the Spirit as he was doing the will of the Father. They're thinking about lunchtime. He knows that he's being empowered by the Father to speak into this lady's life. I got food that you don't even know about. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. By the way, keep Colossians 1, 28 and 29 in your mind. If you want to put a bookmark there, you can. 
it's going to be important because I'm going to ask you a question in a little bit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verses 23 and 24. Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. How's your sanctification coming along? I'm doing the best I can. I'm trying hard. Who does the Bible say is supposed to be sanctifying my whole body, soul, and spirit? God himself, Jesus. And he's promised he will. Go to Jude, verses 24 and 25. Just recently I was listening to uh, Adrian Rogers on the radio and he had people turn to the book of Jude and he said it really kind of cool. He, he said, uh, so you might wonder what chapter. He said, just turn to Jude, you'll figure it out. Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and now and forever. Amen. Again, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and able to present you blameless before himself. Who's the one that all along, I could show you more. I could show you a lot more, but I've preached on this already. I just want to remind you, who's the one that the Bible has taught all along? It'd be the one who finishes what he started. God. Remember, the promises for Israel that are going to be future are ours now. The role of Israel that are going to be theirs in the future is ours now. We're to be priests. We're a royal priesthood. Priesthood, a, pro, a holy nation. We're to be showing people the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean. We're to be living lives in such a way that we're empowered by the Spirit, that people see a difference between us and the rest of the world. But most Christians today are doing the best they can. They don't understand. And that's why Paul prayed. Oh, I pray now that I've heard of your faith and your love for each other. I know the Spirit's in you. He had just said in verses 13 and 14, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. He was talking to people who were saved, had the Spirit of God in them. And then verse 15 goes on and says, now here's my prayer, that you come to understand what's available to you, that you would learn to walk in the Spirit's power. So here's the question I told you I was going to ask. Since the Bible says that this is God's work and he's going to do it, do we just sit back, do nothing, expecting that God will do in and through us what he wants to with no effort on our part? All right, well, what's our responsibility then? What is our effort? Get up and walk through doors, but do so believing that God will give us the grace to do it. In other words, if anybody here struggles with forgiveness, does God say we're to forgive? Well, what if you don't want to? What if you don't feel like it? You forgive believing that God would do through you what he said he would do. You walk, well, how did Paul put it again? We're trying to present everyone mature in Christ. To this end, I toil, I labor, I struggle. But it's with his energy that goes through me. 
We're not to, well, go to Philippians 2. That'd be the easiest way for you to see it. We're not just to sit around and God's just going to do through you what he wants to do. No, you got to put the work in. That's why a lot of Christians sit on the sidelines. They don't believe God will do anything through them. They don't think that they're as powerful as Jim Johnson or some preacher, or they don't think that they're as usable as somebody else. And you have no idea what lies within you. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, that guy has a lot of potential. And I said, I actually get tired of people talking about how this person has potential and that person has potential. Do you realize that if you're a Christian, you have just as much potential as a chair? Let me explain to you what I'm saying. In and of ourselves, we have no potential. But because of Christ, what did he say? Look, if these people don't cry out, the rocks, I can make the rocks talk. God has just as much potential in that chair as he does you and me. He can make that chair do anything he wants it to do. Stop thinking about, well, that guy has so much potential. Every one of us has a ton of potential if we got Christ in us. Even a donkey. Even a donkey. Yes, sir, Chris. You know what? That's profound. You didn't hear what he said for those who are listening online. You might say the chair has more potential because we're the ones who get in the way. Stop looking at yourself when it comes to an ability to do anything. And look at the power of God within you and believe it. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verses 12 and 13. Two of the most confounding verses right next to each other. Therefore, Paul says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So which is it? I'm supposed to work out my salvation or it's God who's going to give me the desire and act it out? Yes. In other words, this fear and trembling means to take serious this relationship that we've been given, this privilege that we've been given, this call of God. We're to get serious about the fact that he wants to use us as priests. And we are to, on a daily basis, say no to our flesh and yes to the Spirit, renew our minds, let the Spirit of God within us have control, do the things he said to do, but don't do them in hopes that we'll do a good job, do them believing that he will do it. Colossians 2, 6, in the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive him? By faith. You believed that what God promised he would do. You asked him to do it. You walked out of that encounter believing you were saved. Why? Because you believed that God would do what he said he would do and you acted on it. In the same way, that's how you walk in him. Everything he's asking you to do, just do it. But believe that God will give you the grace. I had this conversation with my wife just recently. She's like, Jim, you're able to just, if someone were to ask you to just stand up and speak in front of 10 or 100 or 10,000 people, you could just start preaching without even preparing. I go, so could you? She goes, no, I couldn't. Ah, that's because you're looking at yourself. If God had asked you to do it, doesn't the Bible say that he'll give us the words when we need them? Doesn't the Bible say in John 16, one of the roles of the helper, the Holy Spirit, is to bring to our remembrance the things that he's taught us? I said, Becky, you may not realize it because you've been taught to look at yourself. But if God told you to stand up in front of 10,000 people and speak, he would empower you to do it. 
he'll cause you to obey whatever it is he's asked you to do. Now, here's where we have to go even deeper. We are to live holy, obedient lives by faith that God will empower us to carry them out. In order to do that, though, we have to understand before the priests were allowed to perform their duties, what did they have to do first? I'm sorry? Yeah, be sanctified. Go through a cleansing. They had to cleanse the altar. They had to cleanse themselves. They had to wear holy garments. And I want to take some time tonight, and I just want to let the Scriptures speak. I'm not going to try to play the role of the Holy Spirit. I'm not here tonight to convict anybody. I'm not here to try to make anybody feel guilty. But I want you to understand, I believe that the Lord showed me in last night's study and tonight's study as well, that we need to take some time to really take serious the fact that many of us as Christians aren't really we get excited about God doing his work through us, but we don't understand before he'll work through us, he has to wash our feet. There's sin that has to be dealt with so that we can be used as his priests. And I don't know what it is that he'll speak to you about or me about, but I just tell you, listen to what the scripture has to say. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I was just kind of doing a study on this topic, and I came across this passage, and I was blown away by how much it sounded like, especially at the end of it, the exact same instructions for the priests in the Ezekiel temple. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Doesn't that sound like the instructions for the priests? Well, they are. They're instructions for the priests, you and I. And so, folks, I really want you to hear this. In this passage, when it talks about be separate and don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, it's talking about in marriage, it's talking about uh, business. Let me just tell you, you may not realize this, but if you, as a believer, partner yourself with unbelievers in business, you're going to be corrupted, especially in this day and age in which business is all underhanded for the most part, if not all of it. <coughs> Excuse me, I remember years ago when I was in seminary, there was a man who actually had been a student in seminary, and he started a business doing remodeling while he was in seminary to make a few bucks. He started making so much money, he dropped out of seminary and started this business. And he would hire seminary students to go to work for him, and that's how he advertised his business in the papers and whatever there in New Orleans. He'd say, put a seminary student to work, and we would do painting and different things like that, and and and. I actually was hired, after I started painting, he moved me up to be a salesman. And we would do remodels of all kinds. We'd reshingle your roof or whatever. And I was taught 
to go make a sale by offering to people, if you'll let our company reshingle your roof, we'll give you free blown-in insulation. That's what he told me to say. But I couldn't do it because I knew we had calculated the price of the blown-in insulation into the price of the roof. And so I wasn't making any sales. Literally, for three weeks, I was his salesman. Didn't make a sale for three weeks. He finally takes me for a drive in a big, his big Cadillac, and he said, what's going on? I said, he goes, are you offering the free blown-in insulation? I said, I'm not. He said, why not? He said, because, uh, sorry, I said, because it's a lie. He said, Jim, you've got to learn to separate your business from your Christianity. Does this mean we have no contact with unbelievers? No. Jesus loves sinners. He ate with sinners. He hung out with sinners. We're, the Bible's not saying we should have no contact with sinners. Otherwise, we'd have to isolate ourselves in the world. That's, that's going to happen. But we need to understand that a lot of things we do, we should not be doing. You notice how the world went nuts when Mike Pence said that he would never eat alone with a woman that wasn't his wife? They called him a misogynist and all this kind of stuff. No, he was showing the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean. And we don't realize it, folks, but in the church today, the priests, that's you, by the way, have been doing their ministry with dirty hands and unholy garments. And that's why the scripture, and this is the only place I'm going to take you, talks about the need for us on a daily basis to be sanctified. To understand, Lord, if there's something going on, I want you to show me, and I want to repent of it, and I want you to wash it so I can be used. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Therefore, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Did I read the verse right? What did I do wrong? I left off part of it. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. You're going to see all the way through Scripture, the Bible keeps talking to Christians over and over of the need of living holy and pure lives. That's why God says, be holy, because I'm holy. I can't. I, good. Now, if you'll let me, I can wash you. I can use you. But by the way, when Adab, sorry, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, performed their duties before God in an unholy manner, what happened to him? Let me ask you an honest question today. We see in the beginning of the church age, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead by God. I believe they were believers. They struck dead by God. The early part of the church, sorry, the early part of the nation of Israel, when they go uh, into the promised land and they go to defeat Ai, and there was people who disobeyed Achan and his family, and they stole some of the stuff from Jericho, which they weren't supposed to do. What did God do to Achan and his whole family? He put them to death. 
when the tabernacle had just been built and Moses and his sons, and, sorry, Aaron and his sons are serving as priests before God and Nadab and Abihu go in drunk. What did he do? Let me ask you an honest question. The Bible does say there is such a thing as a sin unto death for believers where God says, I'm taking you home early because of disobedience. What if God struck us, I say us, all dead? You can't lose your salvation if you're secure. You've been sealed by the Spirit. But what if God struck us all dead every time we tried to do his work without being cleansed? Would anybody be here? Probably not. But he's gracious. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that we lower the standard. I know it's hard to believe by looking at me, but when I played basketball in college, I could dunk a basketball. I had a 36-inch vertical leap, and I could dunk a basketball with ease. But what I really loved was with going with my brothers behind the elementary school over in Palm Bay and playing on the eight-foot goals. You know why? Because on the eight-foot goals, I could do 360s, I could catch alley-oops, and we would go and dunk for hours on those eight-foot goals. All I had done, though, was make it easy by lowering the standard. God's Word says that for us who are His priests, the standard has not been lowered. Are you flirting with things of the world and things of God? How are you going to distinguish for the world the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean? If you're known to do an underhanded deed in business just like everybody else, but you claim to be a Christian. Again, my job is to just share with you the scriptures and let the Holy Spirit speak. You're in the book of James chapter 1. Just turn back probably one page in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, it goes on and everything. But don't miss that. What are we to do before we run the race? By the way, that was a question. The way to lay aside all the weight and the sin and the hindrances. What are we to do before we receive the implanted word that's able to cleanse our souls and save our souls? We're to put away sin. Oh, by the way, you're going to have to do that the rest of your life. You're going to have to do that on a daily basis. Don't think for a second that you're going to get to a place where you don't sin anymore. John writes in 1 John, he says, My dear children, I write these things to you so you won't sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate. He had just said, though, prior to that in the previous chapter, if we say we don't have sin, we lie, and the truth's not in us. Well, you've heard me say before, if you become a Christian and you learn to walk in the Spirit, you will not become sinless, but you will sin less. There will be a transformation. There will be a progress, a growth in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, an understanding of the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance that we have coming, oh, and also an understanding of the power that's available to us now. And why does God give us power now? Why is he empowering us now? So that we can raise the dead? 
Why is he empowering us now? To do what? To be effective in bringing others to him. But I can't be effective in bringing others to him until I've been sanctified. Not anybody seen it yet? Go to Romans 6. Maybe you guys are getting extra. We might go late instead of getting out early. Go to Romans chapter 6. I'm sorry? We're definitely to glorify him. Romans chapter 6. Start in verse 1. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he had just said, it didn't matter how much sin there was, God's grace is more than that. He said, so can we sin more so we can get more grace? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. By the way, I circled might in my Bible. Not all people experience it. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be what? Enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, never, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members or your body parts to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members or your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not have dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. He goes on and on and continues in more detail. Folks, don't miss this. Why he's empowered us, there's lots of reasons to bring him glory, to bring others to him. But the first thing is to give us victory over sin. He set us free from the slavery to sin. When we were saved, before we were saved, we were slaves to, to sin. We couldn't break free. Much as we tried, we couldn't. But now, because of our baptism in Christ, remember, he's in the Father and we're in him and he's in us. We're swimming in God. Because of that, what happened to Jesus is now ours. Is he tempted anymore to sin? The Bible says he was tempted when he was in the body, yet he never sinned. But now that he's died, he's died to sin. Sin doesn't have any power over him anymore. He had victory over it anyway because of the God within him. But at the same time, we now, because of Christ, have the ability to say no to sin. To live holy lives that are different. And so instead of saying, Lord, I want to be used by you to bring other people to you, that's great. I'm not saying don't say that. I'm saying don't that make that your first prayer. Before the priests would minister... They had to go through a process of being cleansed. We've been washed, but we need our feet washed. We need that daily sanctification, that daily renewing of the mind, that daily, well, I love how one preacher put it. He said, keep a short list of your sins. In other words, once they get there, confess them. Agree with God that this is wrong. Hand them to him. Don't let them stack up. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. We're going to get there in just a second. I'm glad you brought that. I'm glad you brought that. I don't want you to feel condemned. The fact that God's having me point this out is not to make you feel bad. That's the wrong kind of preaching. He loves you. You go on a cruise, you're going to find out in Romans 8.1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But when he points out sin, he's doing it because it's best for us. We're going to miss out on reward in the future if we let sin hinder us and entangle us. We're not going to be able to run the race with perseverance. We're going to be having things drag us down. He loves us. He, he, he doesn't point this stuff out to make you feel bad. He points this out so that there'd be what? goes back to what we learned at the beginning in chapter, in chapter 43, beginning of our lesson tonight. Show them the new plans so that they may what? Repent. Be ashamed of their iniquities. And if they repent and if they're ashamed, show them what there is now that there's going to be, which is going to be really cool. He loves us. It's for our best. I tell you what, let's go back to Ezekiel 43. Look at verses 13 through 27. He said, these are the measurements of the altar by cubits, the cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Remember, it's a long cubit. Its base shall be one cubit high and one cubit broad with a rim of one span around its edge. And this shall be the height of the altar from the base on the ground to the lower ledge, two cubits with a breadth of one cubit. And from the smaller ledge to the larger ledge, four cubits with a breadth of one cubit. And the altar hearth uh, four cubits, and from the altar hearth projecting upward, four horns. The altar hearth shall be square, 12 cubits long by 12 broad, and the, the ledge also shall be square, 14 cubits long by 14 broad, and with a rim around it, half a cubit broad, and its base one cubit all around. The steps of the altar shall face east. And he said to me, Son of man, this says the Lord God, these are the ordinances for the altar. On the day when it is erected, for offering burnt offerings upon it, and for throwing blood against it, you shall give to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who draw near to me to minister to me, declares the Lord God, a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and you shall take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the ledge and upon the rim all around. Thus you shall purify the altar and make atonement for it. You shall take also take the bull of the sin offering and it shall be burned in the appointed place belonging to the temple outside the sacred area. And on the second day you shall offer a male goat without blemish for sin offering and the altar shall be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from your flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days you shall provide daily a male goat for a sin offering, and a bull from the herd, and a ram from the flock without blemish shall be provided. Seven days shall they make atonement for the altar, and cleanse it, and so consecrate it. And when they have completed these days, then from the eighth day onward the priest shall offer on the altar your burnt offering and your peace offerings, and I will accept you, declares the Lord God. Again, we see that same picture. The altar even had to be cleansed before it could be used. Now, i got to be honest with you. As I look at this kind of stuff, I say, thank you, Lord, that I'm in the church age. Because I'd be so worried that I'd mess this up. And I'd miss something. I'm not really good at following instructions. But then again, at this time, are they going to be trying to follow the instructions in their own strength? Or is God going to be empowering them to do it? He's going to be empowering them to do it. Remember, these sacrifices and offerings do not cleanse people from sin. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse people from sin. The Old Testament sacrifices and offerings pointed toward Christ, 
These point back, just like we do with the Lord's Supper. What did Jesus teach us when he taught us to take the Lord's Supper? He said, do this what? In remembrance of me. Whenever you eat the Lord's Supper, you do it to remember what Jesus has done. That's why I don't have any problem with sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, because it's just like our taking the Lord's Supper. It points back to what he's done. And remember, and don't forget this, the Bible's shown us in the prophecies that during this time of the millennial kingdom, the Jews are all going to know him. Every Jew is going to know the Lord, but the Gentiles aren't all going to know him yet. The ones that are being born and all that stuff. And so what's going to happen? The Bible says that people are going to grab the, Gen the Jews and say, Take us to Jerusalem. We hear that the Lord is there. We, we want to go up to Jerusalem and hear the law. And the priests are going to be ministering to the Lord and to the people. And what are they to be doing? They're to show everybody the difference between holy and common, clean and unclean, teaching them the statutes and the, the commands of God. That's our role now. For those that don't know him, we're to be used of God. Now, some of you would say, boy, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be neat that people would say, Where's, I want to come meet the Lord. I want to come meet the Lord. Can you show me where the Lord is? But actually, the Bible says that's happening now. Did you not know that Jesus in John chapter 4 said the fields are white unto harvest? I want to challenge you to stop trying to do what God's called us to do as priests in your own strength, but to do it in the power of the Spirit. Listen closely. Without realizing it, we have, because we've never been taught how to let Jesus do through us what he wants to do, what he's promised he would, we have manufactured in our own flesh, in our own strength, in our own marketing schemes even, trying to accomplish the work of the Spirit in man's energy. For example, the Bible teaches that when we're to go out, we're to only go where he sends us to go, and we're only to speak to who he tells us to speak to. Remember how when he sent his disciples out two by two the first time, he said, don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't even go to the Samaritans, just to the lost sheep of Israel. Does he not care about the Gentiles? Of course he does. But there's going to be a time, and he's got a plan for that as well. And as he scattered them, some went here and some went there, and he determines. But what do we do? We sit around in our meetings and we come up with all these ways that we can reach. We got to get the world, the message to the whole world. And so I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to send you here and, and we're going to send you here. And, and this window hasn't been reached yet. So we're going to try to send some people here. And we try to, in our own strength and our own energy, accomplish what is only done by God. Has anybody ever heard a preacher say, if you all would invite one person next week, we can double our attendance in one Sunday. You ever heard that? And that makes a ton of sense. Would that be of God or of man? That's really hard. Like for me, this past week, um, or like a few weeks now, a friend within our complex lost her husband. And, you know, I spoke to her because we go once a week for a meeting. And um, so I talked to her. A believer. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say something and I didn't and I was over her house and then two days later he dies. You know, and I feel like, you know. Now I'm going to say this as nicely as I can. You may have missed out on a reward, but don't think that if you didn't tell him he never heard. God's way bigger than us and he knows how we're chickens sometimes. He has heard. Everyone's heard. John chapter 6, verse 45, as it says in the prophets, they all will be taught by God. Whoever listens comes to the Father. Now, yes, there are times that he challenges us and puts it on our heart, and we go, 
and we chicken out because we don't, we're afraid. We don't trust that God's going to give us the grace. And we'll miss out on reward for that. But don't think for a second that if he's in hell, it's because of you. It's not because of you. You understand what I'm saying? That's a great point. These rituals that the priests have to perform and will perform in the millennial kingdom have no meaning, though, without, as you just said, without the proper heart of the worshiper. God knows your heart. If your heart is desire to... By the way, did David do some pretty major sins? Would you say King David did some pretty major sins? Like uh, sleeping with a wife, a lady that was married to somebody else and getting her pregnant and then trying to hide it by getting him drunk to get him to go back and cover up his sin. And then when he wouldn't do that, having him killed. I would say David did some biggies. But David was described as a man after God's own heart. And so I want to challenge you in the last little bit we have left here. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Look at verses 11 through 20. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, God says? I've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fathers. Plead the widow's cause. Don't read any further just yet, but we're going to read further. Don't read any further just yet. God says to the nation of Israel, I'm tired of your sacrifices. I'm getting weary with all these bulls. You're coming and you're offering your worship, but you're also doing it with iniquity and sin in your lives and blood on your hands. And... But God, you're the one who told us to do all this. No, no, no. All this stuff was to be a picture of your heart. And many of us in the church today are like the Pharisees that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, where Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Folks, I want to challenge you tonight. Pray the Spirit of God inspires us to desire. Well, by the way, he'll give you the will. And he'll act it out. Remember that? But we have to take serious what he said. I challenge you to live holy lives. Yes, we want to bring people to Jesus. Yes, we want to be used to show people who he is. But what if we spent a little bit of time getting cleansed? Laying aside the sin that's so easily entangled. Putting away the rampant. Isn't that interesting? The Bible would use the word rampant. Wickedness. Oh, after they hear God saying, I'm sick of this. I'm tired of your feasts. I'm tired of you doing iniquity and coming to worship. Uh, why don't you cleanse yourself? Hopefully they would come to a place and say, how? That's the next verse, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Bible is very, very clear, folks, that those of us who have been called to be priests in this time called the church age have been called to live lives among the world that shine as light in the darkness. And we're living in a time in which the church around us, and I say church in quotes, is lowering the standard all the way around. Most, I hate to say it, many if not most Christians today are falling prey to homosexuality is okay. And there are churches now that are filling their seats because we're lowering the standard of holiness and we're calling Christianity something that God never called it. And what did he say to the church at the end of the church age? About to spit you out of my mouth. Wish you were cold or hot. If you're cold, you at least realize you're lost. If you're hot, awesome. But since you're lukewarm, you think you're okay, but you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Would you with me pray for yourselves and for the church in these last days that there would be a distinction between the holy and the common, the clean and unclean? That only is going to happen on an individual basis as we learn to yield to the Spirit and on a daily basis keep that short list of sins have him cleanse us and we move forward and he'll use you. And then have him cleanse us and, have, and he'll use you. All right? I love y'all. See you next week. <laughs>